I wonder if you can remember what persuaded you to become a Christian. Or if you haven't become a Christian, perhaps you're thinking about it, maybe you've heard messages, you've heard people describe reasons why you should become a Christian. What were those reasons? I think it's common for us to hear about the benefits, the advantages, the improvements that will come our way if we follow Jesus. If we've got a longing in our hearts, that longing will be met. Uh, if we're lacking direction and purpose and meaning in life, then God promises to meet those things. Uh, if our relationships are struggling and we're longing for connection, God promises that he'll come and meet with us and dwell with us. Or maybe you've uh, been told that God will remove your guilt, uh, that he'll fill that God-shaped hole, that vacuum in your life, uh, that forgiveness will be yours, that salvation from judgment will be yours. Of course, there are so many things, so many blessings, so many positives in becoming a Christian, and so many of them are true, but it's dangerous to focus on those things. Why is it dangerous? Well, because we can present Christianity, we can embrace Christianity in a way which is really all about me. God's there to meet my needs, to satisfy my desires, to give my life purpose, to give me hope for eternity. And whilst there are real and true benefits, blessings for those who trust in God, the message of the Christian gospel, the good news, is not all about us. It's actually about Jesus. Now, some have gone so far down the track of saying, come to Christ and you'll receive all the blessings that you could possibly imagine, that they present a very skewed view of the truth. Uh, people will say, if you come to Christ, you won't get sick anymore. If you come to Christ, then you'll have huge material blessings in this life. If you follow Jesus Christ, then everything will go well for you. And of course, that can be a massive problem when it doesn't work out that way. And so many people, it seems, have come to a crisis point in their lives, sometimes a real crisis of faith, when things have started to go very badly and they don't understand why and they didn't expect that they would. I imagine for the people of Israel, when they're captive in Babylon, they would have had a similar crisis of faith. In fact, it says in one of the Psalms, Psalm 137, uh, that song that we probably have heard, by the rivers of Babylon I wept when I remembered Zion. And a little bit later, how can we sing the songs of the Lord in a strange land? They're troubled, they're sorrowful, they're grieving. They have missed out. They've lost what they had. They had the blessing of God in the land of God with the city of God, the temple of God, all the religious practices of God's people. Now they've been taken away from them. So how are they to continue in faith in Babylon? How are they to persevere under suffering when things are not going their way? Well, we've been reading about how Daniel and some of his mates have embraced their faith in this sort of time of crisis. And uh, in chapter 7, we saw that even though things are difficult and empires rise and fall, God is there, he's seated on the throne, he rules over all, and he has actually set a time when he will hand over his rule and authority to one called a son of man. Well, there's another vision now in Daniel chapter 8. 
Now let's uh, pick it up and we'll read most of this as we go through. In verse 1, in the third year of King Belshazzar's reign, I, Daniel, had a vision after the one that had already appeared to me. Probably a reference back to chapter 7. In my vision, I saw myself in the citadel of Susa, in the province of Elam, and in the vision, I was beside the Uli Canal. Now, I don't expect you to know where that is, but it seems like he's been transported in his vision to the nation of Persia. And here he has a new vision, and it's quite an extraordinary one. Uh, it's a vision that focuses on a number of beasts. And I want to look at three of them in particular. The two-horned ram, the one-horned goat, and the small horn that grew massive. So first of all, the two-horned ram. Verse 3, I looked up and there before me was a ram with two horns standing beside the canal. And the horns were long. One of the horns was longer than the other one but grew up later. I watched the ram as it charged towards the west and the north and the south. No animal could stand against it and none could rescue from its power. It did as it pleased and became great. Now, what do we do with this, this picture of, of this strange ram with its asymmetrical horns, these long horns, powerful horns, horns were symbols of power in the ancient world. What do we make of that? How are we to understand it? Well, we saw last time that context was important, that remembering picture language was important, and to look at the response was important. And this time, as we saw in chapter 7, there's an explanation for what's going on. And I want to move between the vision and the explanation each time. Because we see here very explicitly in verse 20 that we're told what the ram represents. The two-horned ram, verse 20, that you saw represents the kings of Medea and Persia. Here are two kings, just as they were kingdoms back in chapter 7. Now they are kings represented here in chapter 8. These two kings. And it's a very accurate imagery. Uh, because what we know from the ancient world is that there was a united empire, two distinct nations, the nation of the Medes and the nation of the Persians, but they united together. The Medes there first, but the Persians grew up later and were more powerful and dominant in this combined empire. And that empire continued to grow stronger and stronger. It ended up conquering Babylon. And we saw that back in chapter 5, the writing on the wall. That was the night when the Persians overthrew the Babylonians. And the king, King Darius, he was a Mede who was placed to rule over that kingdom. It's exactly what happened. And of course, at that time, 539 BC, uh, many of the Jews were sent home. And Daniel's vision here means that the hope, the hope of returning is in sight. But there's another problem. Verse 5, as I was thinking about this, suddenly a goat with a prominent horn between its eyes came from the west, crossing the whole earth without touching the ground. I mean, here is this extraordinary picture of a goat what are we to make of it? We'll come down to verse 21, the explanation. The shaggy goat is the king of Greece, and the large horn between its eyes is the first king. Again, very accurate explanation of the kingdom that will rise up 
after the Medes and the Persians and destroy them, and destroy them with extraordinary speed. Uh, the, the feet of this goat aren't even touching the ground. It's crossing over the whole earth without touching the ground. And it's got a very prominent horn at the center. And what we've got here is a picture of the next kingdom, the kingdom of Greece. And the first king, this prominent horn, is none other than Alexander the Great. Now we know of Alexander the Great from ancient history. Um, everybody's probably heard about him, but maybe not seen him described as a shaggy goat that kind of uh, floats across the surface with great speed. But look at what he does. Read on in verses 6 and 7. This goat came to the two-horned ram that I'd seen standing beside the canal and charged at it in great rage. I saw it attack the ram furiously, striking the ram and shattering its two horns. And the ram was powerless to stand against it, and the goat knocked it to the ground and trampled on it, and none could rescue the ram from its power. The goat became very great. So here's a picture of the kingdom of Greece smashing the Medes and the Persians, absolutely decimating them, and the Greek empire effectively taking over the world. And that's what happened. I mean, you can read about it in other places. Alexander the Great conquering the world from Europe to India, commerce, culture, religion, language. The Greek empire dominates the world. And Alexander the Great, the first king, rises up and does this with extraordinary speed. Um, he's conquering the world between the ages of 21 to 26. When some people are working out if they want to get married, settling down after uni, getting a job, Alexander has already conquered the world. In fact, by the time he's 32, he's dead. Here is a picture of what's going to happen. After the Medes and the Persians, there will be the Greeks. But we focus in, it's not just the two-horned ram and the one-horned goat, but, but we look closely at what happens to the horn. Verse 8, the goat became very great, but at the height of its power, the large horn was broken off. Alexander dies at 32. And in its place, four prominent horns grew up towards the four winds of the heavens. Jump across again to the explanation, verse 22. The four horns that replaced the one that was broken off represent four kingdoms that will emerge from his nation, but will not have the same power. Again, extraordinary accuracy. The precision of what Daniel sees in this vision is what will take place in the future. It's the history that is to come. It's a prophecy about how these nations will rise and they will fall. And you see here, as you look at this small horn, uh, a, a picture of one who is uh, extraordinary. He rises with power. Look at verse 9. Out of them came one other horn, which started small but grew in power to the south and to the east and towards the beautiful land. It grew until it reached the host of the heavens, and it threw some of the starry hosts down to the earth and trampled on them. It set itself up to be as great as the commander of the army of the Lord, it took away the daily sacrifice from the Lord, and his sanctuary was thrown down. And because of rebellion, the Lord's people and the daily sacrifice were given over to it. It prospered in everything it did, and truth was thrown down to the ground. Now, what's going on? Well, when you look at what happens with the Greek Empire 
After Alexander the Great, it gets split literally into four separate kingdoms, and none of them are as great. And if you follow down through one of these kingdoms, a ruler arises who is an extraordinary, horrific, nasty piece of work. This ruler takes upon himself the name Epiphanes, which means God manifest. Antiochus IV is this Greek ruler, and he became known as Antiochus Epiphanes, Antiochus God in the flesh. Some people called him Antiochus Epimenes, which means madman. But this ruler had it in for the people of God. He came in and he overran Palestine, he, he sacked Jerusalem, and you can imagine how Daniel would be feeling at this point. I mean, things had been picking up, things had been getting better, but now here is one who'll come back and he will absolutely attack the people of God. It seems like there's just this absolute vengeance, this desire that he has to destroy. And we have a picture here of the temple being overthrown. In fact, uh, the um, the ancient writings that we sometimes find in Bibles with an apocrypha, uh, the book of Maccabees, uh, talk about this period. Uh, Antiochus Epiphanes uh, abolished the sacrifices. Uh, he set up a statue of Zeus in the temple. In fact, there's one occasion when he sacrificed a pig on the altar. Might have done it more than once. But you can imagine how offensive that is to the Jews. He turned the temple into a brothel. Uh, apparently there were human sacrifices in there. He destroyed copies of the Torah. Um, he forbade keeping key laws like circumcision and, and the sacrifices and the public reading of the word of God and so on. And he opposed God's people. He takes a serious stand against God, does this ruler. But we see also that it's not going to go on forever. Verse 13, then I heard the Holy One speaking, and another Holy One said, How long will it take for the vision to be fulfilled? The vision concerning the daily sacrifice, the rebellion that causes desolation, the surrender of the sanctuary and the trampling underfoot of the Lord's people. How long are they going to have to put up with this suffering? And he said to me, it will take 2,300 evenings and mornings, and then the sacrifice will be reconsecrated. Now, again, with numbers, it's hard to know exactly what to do with this. Is it saying it's going to be somewhere around six or seven years? Well, I don't know. Is it just a symbolic number that is defining it going to be a short period of time? It won't go on forever. Well, either way, we see behind this that it's God who is enabling these things to happen. And there's a judgment upon his own people that's being meted out by this ruler of the Greeks, Antiochus uh, fourth. He is the one who will desecrate the temple and destroy the people of God for a time. Well, how does this impact Daniel? Well, look to the end. Uh, verse 26, the visions of the evenings and the mornings that's been given you is true, but seal up the vision for it concerns the distant future. I, Daniel, was worn out. I lay exhausted for several days, and then I got up and went about the king's business. I was appalled by the vision. It was beyond understanding. What an extraordinary thing that, that Daniel is given this vision. He, at the time, he, he's uh, there under the authority of Belshazzar, the king in Babylon. And he sees the Persians and the Medes. 
He sees another empire overthrowing them, the Greeks. He sees the Greek kingdom splitting into four parts. He, he sees one rising up from a, a part of this kingdom, Antiochus Epiphanes, who is going to be absolutely destructive of all that God's people hold dear. It, it wouldn't be a particularly attractive vision to receive, would it? He's exhausted. Well, what do we make of this? I want to say a couple of things, first of all, about the nature of history. History, biblically speaking, is literally his story. It's the story of God. God is at the center of history. And I think the scriptures, and particularly this type of scripture, get used to, to remind us that whatever's going on in this world, nations rising and falling, wars and rumors of wars and... and uh, and diseases and economies rising and falling and destruction and murder and strife and, and, and people uh, abusing Christians and, and there being the persecution of, of, of people, of religion, all sorts of things going on in this world. It's not outside of the control of God. It's his story that we are part of. History is not random. It's not meaningless. And uh, we need to remember this because so often it just seems that everything is out of control and it would have felt like that for Daniel. But we're not just random victims of evolutionary forces. This is not all meaningless and catastrophic. No, there is hope because God is behind what is going on in our world. Kings and kingdoms rise and fall according to God's design. And we see that in the Bible. And it's attested outside the Bible. And God gives his explanation of why certain of these historical events are taking place. We, we haven't got a verdict on everything that God is doing. I mean, it, wouldn't it be so helpful, we think, to know exactly why things have happened in the US the way they have over the last 10 years? To understand what's going on in the nation of China and its... Uh, and, and it's kind of bullying tactics economically around the world and, and uh, with the power of its uh, armies and navies and air force and so on. Wouldn't it, wouldn't it be helpful to understand the truth of what's going on in Russia and the impact on all the stars? Wouldn't it be so helpful if we knew what the, the real power and authority of, of people like Bill Gates and uh, Mark Zuckerberg and, and uh, Elon Musk and these multi-billionaires really is. You see, there's all sorts of things that we might delight to know, but we're not told. But this gives us confidence that God knows what he's doing, even with all the events that are going on in our life, because it's his story. This world is God's story. It was true for Nebuchadnezzar in Babylon, Cyrus in Persia, Alexander the Great in Greece, Antiochus and the Maccabean Wars that took place after him. And, and God uses people and politics and economics for the good and for bad. And God works through all things in an extraordinary way. And it's quite interesting, actually, to think, too, about the nature of of selective history because the Bible doesn't tell us everything about everything but it makes a claim to give us everything that we need to know to live a life of godliness. The Bible is sufficient to lead us to trust in Jesus and to be able to live out every good work that God 
has in place for us to do. In other words, it gives us all that we need, enough to be able to live faithful, godly lives, trusting in Jesus. You see, it doesn't tell us everything, but I think that's helpful because it means we don't have to know everything. And we live in a communication environment at the moment where we're bombarded constantly. The television, the news, the the cycle upon cycle, details and statistics and everything that we're kind of being faced with. And, And you want to find the answer to something and so you Google it. And up comes 10 million different hits and you don't know what to trust, where to go, what to do. And the, the Bible is God's explanation of things. God, God gives us a window into what's truly going on, often in this type of literature, but right through the scriptures, whether it's poetry or prose, narrative or letters, God is revealing what's truly going on in our world. I imagine that before you looked at this passage, that pretty much all of us had heard of Alexander the Great. Uh, maybe none of us, or only a few of us, had heard about Antiochus Epiphanes. But what we're going to discover is that Antiochus Epiphanes treats the temple in a way which will help us to understand what God is doing in Jesus Christ, rescuing us from our sin for all eternity. I mean, Alexander the Great, sure, he conquers the world by the time he's in his mid-twenties. But there's something about the nature of Antiochus that gets picked up here. This little horn that grows powerful in its opposition to God's people that we need to recognize is pointing us to Jesus. Because in Jesus, that temple of God is destroyed in Jesus' body. And the sacrifice of the temple stops. The curtain is split in two from top to bottom because the daily sacrifices will be abolished forever in Jesus as he becomes the one true forever sacrifice. And there's many more connections and we'll see a few more of these as we look through the rest of the book of Daniel. But I want to give a word of warning as well. In verse 17, Daniel is told to understand that the vision concerns the time of the end. Down again in verse 19, the vision concerns the appointed time of the end. Down in verse 26, the vision concerns the distant future. We need to be careful at this point because for 2,000 years, if not more, God's people have had the, the, they've had this tendency to grab passages like this where it says about the end and 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 the time of the end and what's going to happen at the end and grab hold of it and go, well, look at what's going on in the world now. This must be the end. And people are doing it today. When you look at the climate change impact, uh, the, the earthquakes, the fires, the floods, the tsunamis, the, the hurricanes, when you look at the, the power politics going on around the world, I'm sure that people have got connections to... Uh, to COVID and vaccinations and all sorts of things. And we tend to think, okay, now we've got it. This is the end. But Daniel gets an explanation of the end that's in mind. I mean, we we don't want to be tagging our 21st century perspective onto this passage 
because the end that's in mind for Daniel is not the end of all things. No, it's, it's the fact that there's going to be an end. But first of all, he's got to see what's going on with the Medes and the Persians and then what happens with the Greeks. And, and if we read on, we'll see that it takes us into the next empire, into the Romans as well, because the end is really what's going to come about through Jesus. And it's very important that we see that in all of God's purposes, all of history narrows down and it focuses on Jesus Christ. And if we don't appreciate that, we'll be grabbing hold of every clue that we can possibly find, thinking this is that and that's going on and therefore this is about to happen and we're now in this time and we'll get it wrong, as everyone before us has. Because God's plans and purposes are summed up in Christ, Christ who came and Christ who will return. He will come again. Friends, this is weird stuff, isn't it, in Daniel 8, Daniel 7, Daniel 9 to 12, yet to come. It's, it's weird stuff, all right, and it can be overwhelming. It can be overwhelming just trying to grapple with the literature, although I hope that you can see that, that God's been very kind in giving very specific explanations of what's happening here in this chapter and in the one before it. We, we can be overwhelmed, though, by the reality I mean, the picture here of a world in opposition to God and to God's people, it's tough. It's hard. And I imagine that Daniel has his sick days because it's its not just that he's been bombarded with a vision that's left his head spinning. It's because he knows that the future of his people is going to be torturous. There's going to be hard times. And they're going to go through similar experiences to what they've already been through under Antiochus. Friends, even today, there is persecution and suffering for God's people. Uh, we get regularly newsletters from the Barnabas Fund. Uh, we, we look regularly at um, updates from Open Doors. The, the, there's the Voice of the Martyrs. There are various news organisations that are out there keeping us in touch with what's going on for God's people around the world and what people are going through and have been going through. Over the last century, it's it's appalling. People being tortured, people being burnt alive, people being um, deprived of, of basic human needs, God's people being um, opposed violently by those who are in opposition to God, to belief in God. It, it goes on. It's still there. And we should keep praying for those who are doing it so tough. But we should also realise that the end has actually already been put into place. That Jesus has come and that the beasts and these beastly figures will be all overthrown by a lamb. In Revelation, there's a picture of a lamb, a weak lamb that looks like it's been slain. And there are also these beastly figures. And the victory there is the victory of the Lamb. Jesus overcomes all the powers of evil by his sacrificial death as the Lamb of God. So you and I need not live in fear or despair because God is in control and he's promised an end, an end to suffering, an end to persecution, and an end where we will be united with the Son of Man, ruling with him in glory for all eternity. Well, thank you, God, for the book of Daniel. 
Thank you for this vision uh, shown to Daniel and the confidence that it gives us that you are in control. Uh, we see that you have been at work in disciplining your children, uh, that as your people have turned against you, you've brought punishment against them in the past. But we want to thank you for taking all of the punishment that we deserve upon yourself in Jesus. We want to thank you for the forgiveness, the grace, the kindness, the mercy that comes through Christ. And we pray that we will be filled with gratitude for this. That we won't fear what we're going through, but that we'll look forward in faith and in hope and that we'll be moved to love. Amen.